Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Valentino Stoll. Hey now. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's Takashi Kokobun. Hi. Do you want to remind people who you are? I'm pretty sure we've had you on before, but... Sure, sure. It's been a little while. Yeah. I'm kind of known as also like as a uh, temporary engineer. I'm a maintainer of EOB, and also I'm uh, kind of also the Hamo 6. Like, Hamo 5 was replaced by uh, another equation called Hamolit, so like, I'm kind of known of the Hamo now. And I also became a maintainer of CMASL this week, so like... Uh, I made all those things. And uh, after those uh, kind of tank dangerous works, I kind of switched the gear towards um, maintaining a JIT compiler. So R- Ruby programming, like a C Ruby, or also known as MRI, has two different JIT compilers. One is a MRI, uh, sorry, MJIT that was merged to Ruby 2.6, and the other is a YJIT that was developed uh, by Shopify and merged to uh, Ruby 3.1. So that's two different JIT compilers. and. I've been maintaining MJIT for five-ish years, and this year I joined Shopify, and I'm uh, currently developing YJIT full-time, so that's basically what I'm on. Good deal. I'm frequently surprised at how many companies are running their apps in production without any way of knowing when things go wrong, or who are running them in production and not really having a way of knowing where things are slowing down. That's why I recommend that people use a service like AppSignal. AppSignal plugs into your application seamlessly, whether you're using Rails or Phoenix or something else, and provides you a way of knowing when things go wrong, when things are going slow, and what other problems your application may be facing so that you can fix them and provide a seamless user experience for those who are using your app. So whether you're starting a new app or working on an existing app, you should check out AppSignal and see how it can work for you. Go to AppSignal.com. That's A-P-P-S-I-G-N-A-L.com. And I think we were planning on talking a bit about the JIT. And just to kind of kick it off, I'm a little curious. So is YJIT going to replace MJIT? Is that the plan? So uh, currently we are not thinking, planning on removing MJIT, but basically okay. for production usages, we do intend to uh, let people use uh, YJIT instead of MJIT on production. We okay. still have MJIT for experimental purposes, like because we rewrote the MJIT in Ruby this year. We could possibly explore more aggressive optimizations or optimization that take a lot of time for compilation because YJIT compiles everything during the runtime. You know, unlike MJIT doing the compilation parallelly, it's harder to introduce some, um, or like it takes careful consideration to introduce two complicated optimizations. So it's kind of easy to experiment with uh, complicated optimizations in MJIT first and then think about how we could adopt that in YJIT. So it's kind of two different like ways to experiment with JIT compilers. So I don't think we are going to completely replace MJIT, but still we think that MYJIT is for kind of like future or longer term JIT code, I think. All right, sounds good. So boy, this goes back. We don't do this as much anymore, but we used to always start with the definition. I think that's a good place to start here. Do you want to just explain what the JIT is like? For the normal Ruby person who doesn't ever write JIT in their text editor, right, right. right. So JIT is um, like an abbreviation of just in time, and just in time meaning we kind of skip that part, the compilation. So JIT is if you say JIT, it's uh, usually means just in time compiler, and then by just in time compiler, it just means that we are compiling the code on the fly, like. While you like after you started the interpreter, we start compiling the native code. So if you say JIT, it usually means native code instead of um, 
so-called bytecode. Bytecode is uh, something that's executed by the Ruby interpreter. Usually, like if you part, like if you provide a Ruby program to the interpreter, what it does first is to parse the Ruby program into a syntax tree, and then uh, the syntax mm-hmm. tree is compiled into a so-called bytecode that could be uh, kind of easily interpreted by the Ruby interpreter that is kind of specific to the interpreter and not reusable for any other virtual machine like a Java virtual machine. So the Ruby bytecode is specific to Ruby, but then we could also further optimize that into a native code for, for example, for Intel and ARM, uh, YGT supports Intel and ARM architectures for 64-bit machines. And so basically what JIT compiler does is to optimize uh, Ruby-specific virtual machine instructions into uh, native code that's specific to your machine. So you could unblock more optimizations there. Awesome. So yeah, so just to kind of break it down for folks and maybe say it in a little bit different way. Yeah, when you run your Ruby program, it basically converts your Ruby code to a, a syntax tree. The syntax tree then is basically interpreted into bytecode that'll run on the Ruby VM but uh, the Ruby VM is not as fast as having native code that's compiled to run against your, basically your uh, processor architecture. And so the JIT basically then comes in and just in time, or more or less while you're running your code at some point, compiles it down to that so that when you call a specific method or things like that, all of that functionality is already compiled to run optimally on your CPU. And that makes Ruby fast, which makes us all happy. Yeah, <laughs> that's our plan. So, so you said that you've been maintaining MJIT for the last while, and uh, now you're working on YJIT. Are these ri- you said MJIT's written in Ruby, and YJIT's written in Rust? Yes, yes. So, so, so um, what's the difference, and why why the different approach? So, first of all, YJIT has a unique architecture, which was um, sort of proposed by the. Uh, lead developer of YJIT, uh, Maxim. So Maxim's uh, PhD tweet is about, it was about the compiler design that is uh, named, they called lazy basic block versioning. That is to uh, compile each basic block. Basic block is a simple block break broken down whenever you have a, a branch instruction. Like if you have a if, else, and, then the uh, block between if and else is a single basic block and uh, mm-hmm. block, the under block between as an end is on a basic block. So each basic block is compiled lazily. Like if you reach a basic block uh, boundary, uh, you basically stop compiling it and then just execute that JIT compiled native code. And then when you reach the point that ends the uh, currently compiled JIT code, then you start a uh, JIT compiler again and then uh, compile only that basic block and then go for- forward. And then uh, if you reach another uh, non-compiled JIT basic block, you compile that again. So that kind of lazy compilation is the design of widget, and that requires you to execute the compiler at runtime. Like you are not compiling the code in a different thread. Like MJIT used to be using a native thread that is uh, running parallelly with the, the uh, main thread of Ruby. So uh, you don't need to worry about the compilation time for MJIT, but for widget, because because of that kind of assumption, that is actually used by a JIT compiler. For example, you can peek into the actual uh, self object or uh, arguments and operands, whatever you want to actually look at. Uh, you could do everything at the runtime. So, because of that assumption, YJIT is kind of hard to uh, parallelize those um, compilation process. So, you don't want to be slow at compiling the uh, Ruby code in the YJIT compiler. So, we thought that 
So C language is obviously hard to implement. That, that's kind of complicated logic. So we wanted to get away from C. However, it needs to be fast so that uh, we don't need to let Ruby slower. So for making Ruby fast, we kind of needed to use a fast language, unfortunately. And then Rust was a kind of a good alternative because that does, doesn't need um, GC. You, uh, having two different GCs in a single process kind, is kind of like very complicated. So we kind of wanted to avoid that. So it's a pretty good option to make it fast uh, while still uh, allowing the complicated process. So why, because of the asynchronous comparison assumption, why you needed to use Rust, but for MJIT, because we were using uh, native threads, first of all, and then we also switched the architecture to use a forked child process to do the compilation. Because because of that, we needed to uh, kind of uh, give up the Windows support. But now the image compiler is running as a child process of the main Ruby process. Uh, you don't need to worry about the uh, speed of the compilation, kind of. So we could just use the Ruby to implement uh, whatever complicated logic we have. So that's the difference between them. So I'm curious on that, because you seem to make the distinction of MJIT and YJIT there, of one being more thread-friendly than the other. Right. Makes me think of, okay, well, like the whole JIT purpose is the more you run it, the faster it will get because it caches more of the things and and uses the bytecode rather than whatever it's trying to compile each time. Right. So how is how is that kind of like stored and cached at the system level? And how does that interact with the processes for both MJIT and YJIT that like is it is YJIT basically say, hey, if you're doing multi-threaded stuff, we're not going to take advantage across the thread space? So the thread thing I talked about is more about the comparison process and not about the actual runtime code. The runtime code actually do support the multi-threading. Like the when you run the compiler, uh, it's not kind of uh, multi-threading friendly because you want to actually know about the actual main thread uh, information. Like the as I said, the receiver or arguments. If you run that uh, parallelly, the receiver or the arguments might be changing while you are compiling. So we don't want to use the threading there. But after you compile the code, that's kind of like compatible with the uh, multi-threading. Like for example, if you use raptors, you could use a multiple native threads running concurrently, but that just works. So for the JIT compiled code, so that's not a problem, but it's basically comparison time threading versus the runtime uh, threading. And I think it's not a problem for actual users. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm looking forward. To, I saw your talk just recently on uh, YouTube now that Ruby Kagi has their you know videos out. And I really liked, yeah, Ruby 4 <laughs> was was in your title of your talk, yeah. which I thought was great. And, you know, talking about getting Ruby to be hopefully as fast as Java, right? Well, you, I think you said 10 times faster uh, right. is the goal, right? <laughs> and getting us away from ha- having to worry about, you know, all of our data people using Python instead of Ruby, right? <laughs> right. So, I mean, what what is on that trajectory toward that Ruby 4 goal because uh, i love just like ins- upgrading my ruby and all of a sudden all my code's running faster like mm-hmm. what what are some like top things that you s- see like as making that you know jump up up that path so first of all about the goal the goal i said was not only but J- not only java but also like a uh, javascript so like Java uses a Java virtual machine, which also allows something like a class loader that is pretty dynamic, uh, similar to Ruby. So if you 
can optimize Java, which has a glass loader or some, some sort of dynamic things, you should be able to make a similar kind of dynamic language as fast as Java as well. So like, if Java can be that fast, uh, Ruby should be able to be that fast as well. And similarly, if you have a V8 or like uh, something as fast as JavaScript, because JavaScript is also a, a dynamically timed language, Ruby, I think, should be also be able to be as fast as uh, JavaScript, basically. That's the idea. So there's technically no blocker for doing that. We basically want more people to develop that. And fortunately, Shopify provided the funding for developing widget with a lot of many people. So like, we should be able to do that as long as we continue this effort. And for uh, talking, uh, discussing the actual things that are missing currently, I think uh, we first of all need to be on 100% JIT compiled code on running production applications. So the, our, our current actual immediate work is like, we have the metrics called ratio in YJIT. That's um, the ratio showing that the how many percentage you are on the JIT code. So like whenever you hit something that uh, JIT compiler cannot handle, you fall back to the interpreter. So that means uh, you need to be slower than the actual, the, uh, ideally uh, JIT compiled code. And then the percentage is currently like uh, on the, so the benchmark of Rails bench, we are kind of like 89%-ish on the widget. I think it's at least better than the 3.1 on the master branch, but we're working hard to make it nearly 100% so that almost everything runs on JIT compiler. So once we do that, we then need to optimize the existing JIT code further. Like So like the first step is to bring us towards 100% ratio in YJIT in the uh, real-world applications like Rails, and then optimize the uh, JIT compiled code further. And I think that there are pretty like big things that could be optimized in the already JIT compiled code. For example, local variables. Local variables are uh, on the interpreter. We store that on the so-called uh, virtual machine stack. That is not native stack, so it's kind of slower. But we could for at least use a native stack. And also, uh, we could use registers that are native to the uh, actual machine. So if we leverage or allocate the uh, Ruby's local variables to the registers, uh, we could be more faster. Although you always have to think about how we deal with the uh, dynamic things like binding, like binding local variables we get could prevent that kind of optimization from happening. But we uh, should be able, we have a pretty good way to deal with that kind of optimization. Like we have a way to patch existing JIT compiled code. Like YJIT has a way to uh, dynamically optimize update the existing code, uh, for example, that is used by a so-called like a feature called TracePoint. When TracePoint is enabled, we have to enable the debugger and we cannot reuse the optimized code anymore. So to enable that, we patch existing JIT compiled code. And that is not easily like achievable in MJIT. That's why I'm kind of favoring uh, in the uh, YJIT currently. So in YJIT, we could do that kind of pretty dynamic optimization. And so uh, we should be able to deal with uh, dynamics like uh, binding local variables get. So uh, we should be able to do the local register allocation. And the other big thing is uh, uh, method inlining. So whenever you code a Ruby method, that is takes a lot of cost because um, in every Ruby method call or block call, you have to maintain a lot of metadata and you that's a lot of an assignment to the registers and uh, like stack. So it incurs a lot of costs. And obviously, Ruby uses a lot of method calls in the program. So once we 
are able like once you like, uh, can analyze that um, each block doesn't need the call frame for that kind of uh, method or uh, this block doesn't do any like a uh, like instruct inspect inspectation on the call frame then for example if you don't use the like puts caller or backtrace related information you don't need to push the uh, call frame necessary as long as you the method doesn't raise anything either so for that kind of cases, we can just keep pushing that frame and skipping that view, uh, optimize ev- almost every uh, method call faster. So if every method call fast becomes faster in Ruby, it means we make it a, a lot more faster. So by doing so, the performance of Ruby could be many, much closer to other very optimized languages. So I think that those thing, two things are uh, kind of like a, the major thing that will be uh, brought to uh, Ruby 3.3. The currently developed version is 3.10.2. We are uh, trying to make it like stable by the end of this year. So like we are not going to introduce uh, to the, to the, those two optimizations this year. But for the next version, uh, we are planning on doing those two big optimizations. Yeah, I did see at 3.2, you mentioned you have the bytecode monkey patching, which, which lets you to, to make your own JIT on top of the JIT, <laughs> yeah. which is <laughs> just kind of funny. Uh, so... How do you keep track of your optimization progress? Like, what do you, what kind of monitoring do you do while you're like running stuff and testing specific things? Like, do you have special tools or visualizer? You know, I'm just imagining like a dashboard for instruction sequences <laughs> just running, right? <laughs> right. So we do have some tools to monitor that. Uh, the first of all, we have a benchmark harness called YGBench. It's a GitHub uh, slash Shopify slash YGBench. And we have a bunch of uh, real-world pro, uh, benchmarks, such as, uh, first of all, Rails Bench. And another thing is recently added with um, Ruby LSP. So we uh, developed a language server by like developed by Shopify, and we added the uh, like benchmark harness that's uh, like measuring the performance of the Ruby LSP. So if you make it faster, that your uh, local development experience because faster because we uh, also enabled widget by the uh, Ruby LSP language server. So those kind of real world applications are kind of uh, compiled into a, a open source benchmark there. And so we want to, um, we can easily measure the metrics using that benchmark harness. And we have a metrics generation system inside widget that is called uh, widget stats. So if you pass, or like, first of all, you have to enable the stats in when building a Ruby interpreter. And then once you build that, uh, you can pass dash dash widget dash stats to enable stats. And when you pass that flag, you can either uh, instrument the stats by calling a method to return a hash that includes the static statistics, or at the end of the interpreter stop, you see that uh, metrics, every metrics at the end of the interpreter exits. So if you run the uh, YG bench with dash uh, YG stats, you can see the metrics at the end of the program. And then you could also see that uh, the overtime change through the uh, method code of the uh, YG stats method code. So the two things we are currently doing is, first of all, we run uh, widget bench on Rails bench on every single Ruby commit on the uh, GitHub Ruby, Ruby repository. And so whenever we merge something, we can easily check what is changing in the uh, Rails bench. Like for example, we often monitor the change of the ratio in widget for Rails bench so that at least we don't become like slower than the previous revision, at least on the uh, Rails bench. And we also have um, like website called speed.yg.org 
that is to monitor the like uh, visualized graph of every uh, YG bench, including Rails bench. So if you open the speed.yg.org, uh, you can see the graph or like a uh, historical changes over those benchmarks. And uh, finally, we also have internal uh, deployment of YG. So we have uh, two different monolith, or like uh, we have a monolith and also like a pretty big, uh, highly optimized usage of the uh, Ruby application. So like we, for that application, we deploy YGTOM production in a canary, so-called canary cluster. So there is a small cluster that deploys YGIT and we can monitor those uh, metrics there. So like not just the like pseudo Rails application that is called RailsBench, but also we also monitor the actual performance on production as well. So that way we can uh, kind of track not only uh, easily monitorable metrics, but also the actual metrics on our business related applications. That's really cool. So can other businesses contribute to these kind of canary stats? Currently, there, we don't provide a way to like make it visualized in the like dashboard, but like maybe you could, what you could do might be if you have something like, intensive in your application and like if it um, happens to be open source, you could probably contribute that kind of code to Bench. And so if you do that, we can easily learn that. Like if it's uh, just a um, proprietary application code, even if we can see the graph, there is no way to debug that in depth. And so uh, we cannot help you anyway. So just having a graph is sometimes not helpful. We should definitely be able to see the code. So if you can carve out your workload into a, a wedge bench, that would be really cool. Um, that, yeah. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. I would love to see kind of what how other companies are taking advantage of the JIT and how they progress, right? I mean, Shopify is big enough that I could get a lot of f- feedback from their services, I imagine. Yeah, One speaking of that, is there, because you're talking about like measuring benchmarks and stuff like that. One thing that I'm curious about is that, you know, is there a beyond sort of monitoring and seeing what's going on with the JIT? Yeah, is there some practical thing that I can do on my apps if I have a performance concern somewhere that, you know, I can say, okay, you know, JIT this, JIT it to death. <laughs> so I think if you, like don't we, if it's hard to carve out your workload into YG Bench, what you could do is to again about YG Stats. So like if you build your like a maybe we should actually make it easier to build the interpreter with Stats enable. But there's a way to enable YG Stats, and then if you build Ruby that way, uh, you could run your application with YG Stats enable, and then see the how the stats are like looking at uh, looking like. And then if you can just provide the YG Stats to us, and then we could see what kind of things are fading or like at least uh, exit into the interpreter. So for the first milestone, we want to make the uh, ratio in YG 100%. And then if you just provide the YG stats, we could at least see why the ratio in YG could be like low in your application. So like we are kind of prioritizing the uh, our JIT compilation development process by looking at the uh, those stats, so like if you have the stats that are that look different from our stats, then providing that could be like allowing us to prioritize uh, optimizing your workload. So that might be a good first step, I guess. Yeah, you know, I, I saw Shopify. Somebody pointed me to Shopify's boot boot program where you could dual boot Rails and and dual boot even Ruby versions. I kind of want to test out some of this JIT stuff on it and see. I don't know if it allows doing that or if it's just versioned or. Yeah, I think I think having that ability to see even just like what your CI does, it, it would be nice to have something I could just snap in. Is that something YJIT Bench can kind of do for somebody? 
could you like hook into widget bench in like a CI against a specific uh, portion of your Ruby? If you are like if you want to run your local code without like publishing your code into the internet, maybe you could use a like so called harness in the widget bench to uh, hook your application specific logic to the widget bench. Like uh, if you want to see the like the comparison between non-widget version versus widget version, then you could definitely plug that into the widget bench locally and then without uh, permission that to the internet. And um, when, when you do that, because we already have a Rails bench, maybe you could use some of the code to like call the uh, Rails application code. Like if you are if you are interested in plugging your Rails application to widget bench, then you can definitely look at uh, Rails bench as an example to call the uh, Rails endpoint. And then you could measure what um, these stats look like there and also compare, compare between uh, JIT-enabled and JIT-disabled version, I think. Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood. I'm excited because I wanted to let you know about this thing that I pulled together that I had just, I've been dying to have this for years and I never felt like I could. And then I just realized that there's no reason why I can't. So um, I'm putting together a book club and we're going to read development focused books, career books, you know, uh, technical books, whatever. The first book that we're going to do is going to be Clean Architecture by Uncle Bob Martin. If you're not familiar with Clean Code or some of the other stuff that Bob has done, check that out. I've also talked to him on the Clean Coders podcast, which is on Top End Devs. But uh, yeah, we're going to get on. He's going to show up to some of our meetings. And what I'm thinking is we'll probably have like five or six people uh, part of the conversation along with Bob and I at the same time. And we'll just, uh, so somebody can come on, they can ask their question and then we'll just ro- rotate people through. So we'll we'll mute one person, unmute another person when it's their turn to come on and, and be part of the discussion. So we'll do that for like an hour, hour and a half. And then the other part of it that I'm putting together is just kind of a meet and greet gather area on Gather Town. And so after the the meetup and the call, what we'll do is we'll all go over to Gather Town and you can just log in, walk up to a group and have a conversation. And that way we can all kind of get to know each other and and make friends and and get to know people across the world. Uh, one thing that I'm finding is that, yeah, the meetups are starting to come back, but a lot of people don't have the opportunity to go to a meetup. And I really want to meet you guys and talk to you. So we're going to put all that together. It'll all be part of that book club. You can go to topendevs.com slash book club to be part of it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there. The first book club meeting will be in December, the beginning of December. We're starting the first week of December. And um, you'll also be part of the conversation about which book we do next. I have one in mind, but I want to see where everybody's at. So there you go. So how do you feel about Rust? All right. So. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I started using that uh, in my like, pri- private project before joining uh, Sharpa, and then I'm now like almost full-time writing Rust. And um, first impression was like, it's too hard to write, basically. So like Ruby is pretty easy to get in, but like Rust is a too hard buy to like start even start writing because you need to fix every single compression failure, and like it's a lot of failures if you start writing that. And uh, the like the largest difference to me was the like the move semantics. So like if you have a variable or like a reference to something, you cannot share that between different like places. If you ref- reference that variable, it basically it's gone to that function, and then you can't use that uh, variable anymore unless you are doing like intentionally, like, explicitly sharing that as a reference. So that kind of semantics is like, like 
hard to understand unless you have experience in C++ that also has some sort of like moves like this partially. So Rust is a um, pretty well-designed language in a way that um, you allow, uh, that allows you to have nodes, you see. And so it feels to me like Rust allows you to solve two complicated problems and like that is exposing the problems to users instead of hiding that by uh, having a complicated logics like a garbage collection. So like if the program language itself has a garbage collection, you don't need to solve every single programming hard problems, but Rust allows you to solve it by uh, thinking about essential problems. And so it's kind of like a trade-off, like if you are interested in writing a fast code, maybe modern options are basically a Go or Rust or Zig. But if you choose Rust, it's harder to write compared to at least a Go. But it's like you can, if you want to enjoy solving difficult problems, then you might as well like try Rust for doing that. So at least it's an interesting problem, but, but like experience. But if you are just some um, want to get things done, Rust might not be an option for you. I guess. So I'm curious how your experience has been like tying back into the the C code portion of of Ruby. Is that experience pretty smooth with Rust? Like I imagine at this point, you know, Wyjet has a, a substantial, you know, framework in place to hook into. Is that is that smoothing out or is it getting more complicated over time? <laughs> so this is kind of also another major like challenge in using Rust. So like Rust is not like kind of hard to integrate that with C basically. So whenever you use, use a need to integrate a C code, you at least need to declare unsafe. So if you integrate your Rust code with C, you basically have to uh, like say unsafe block every single time. And at least it's a hard and like, so there's a language called Zig and this, that's also a kind of a modern language. And Zig is um, designed to be easily integratable with C. So if you use that language, you don't need to do a lot of things for encoding the C code directly. But in Rust, you at least have to generate a binding uh, similar to what you are doing in Ruby. So like you, first of all, call the bindgen tool to uh, use LLVM to pass a C code and then convert that to Rust declaration. And then you can link the C code and Rust code together. But again, you need to use the uh, unsafe block. And also you have to do the com type conversion between C types and Rust types. So like it's, uh, um, I would say it's almost as hard as uh, using C from Ruby. So uh, it wasn't like a good experience. And like we at least have a, already have an interface for calling major C, C, Ruby, C functions already. So it's not getting worse over time, but still we sometimes have to add another declaration of C functions to the widget. So it's not easy, but like it's not too difficult either. So what what kinds of optimizations are you putting in now? And I guess what does Rust offer in that way? I, I'm, I'm just curious, you know, instead of writing it in C or Ruby like the other JIT is. So I think we are not really leveraging Rust optimization, but like we are sort of assuming that Rust is fast enough. Uh, at least okay. we, because we don't have a garbage collection, whenever I write Rust, we, I kind of assume that every single like, struct is uh, allocated on stack so that we don't need to use a heap for heap management that is slower than stack allocation. So like because we have move semantics, I think we are transparently always um, leveraging the uh, stack allocation optimization, which is at least not possible in Ruby or like, yeah, it's not possible, uh, almost always not possible in Ruby. So 
Yeah, we are kind of reversing that, but basically we assume that um, Rust is fast whenever we write that. And uh, what what's coming? I mean, what what kinds of things do you look at now? Because it sounds That's like right. your mm-hmm. JIT implementation is relatively stable and mature. So yeah. So for YJIT, the recent work that I've been doing was a uh, CoZC. So in the Ruby three point one, the the first release of YJIT in Ruby was basically like. If you start Ruby interpreter, it allocates the physical memory of uh, 256 megabytes uh, at once, and then uh, use use the code uh, part, like start writing the code blocks to the uh, pre-allocated uh, block of the memory. However, obviously, it consumes a lot of memory even if it's not needed for the uh, process. So we changed the architecture this year to uh, lazily allocate the memory pages one by one. So if you start the interpreter, it doesn't allocate a lot of like memory, physical memory. It just allocates a virtual memory, which is not actually consume your the physical memory. So we allocate virtual memory and then uh, use the uh, physical memory over time. It's an improvement in 3.2. However, we still need to leave code used by initialization without garbage correction. So like, for example, if you have a Rails application, uh, you do a lot of initialization process in the Rails initializer, for example, and then you will not use that code anymore after the initialization finishes. So uh, it still const- um, like wastes some memory usages without garbage correction. So we introduced uh, code GC, so like a feature to uh, garbage correct your JIT code as well. And that's, uh, I've been a primary developer of CodeZC so far. And then we, first of all, needed to change the diff, like layout of the code or the order the code put in so that that could be easily garbage corrected. And then we uh, also implemented the algorithm to uh, garbage correct everything in the JIT code. And so what it does is you have an option called YJIT exec name size. Uh, which is uh, 256 megabytes by default. And then if the memory usage hits that limit, we start the code GC, and then it basically uh, frees every single code, uh, including onStack one. So like onStack means if you are uh, calling something in the caller, then it's onStack. And so we cannot free that any, uh, immediately, but we can at least invalidate the code so that when you uh, leave that stack and then come back again, uh, you can uh, recompile that. So by freeing every single code in the 256 megabytes, you can start uh, recompiling only what's needed after the code ZC is triggered so that um, you have more compact code and you have no initialization initialization code if the code ZC happens after initialization. That way you save more memory and as well as uh, having more localized code that is faster than less localized code. So that's the uh, kind of optimization I've been recently working on. Cool. So is this what you're doing full-time? You said yes. Shopify, right? So um, I'm hired as a like a YG team member, and so even while I'm also a maintainer of MJ, I don't really work on MJ at work. However, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes other folks are working on something else, such as um, object shapes. So object shapes is a recently uh, merged idea to Siri that is to optimize um, instance variable access, basically. So for implementing that, they needed to fix some code in Wajit and also MJIT as well. And fortunately, uh, now Shopify has a MJIT maintainer, so they could talk to me and do some pair programming to fix in something in MJIT when needed. So uh, I've been sometimes helping other developers change MJIT, but um, for developing MJIT, there's rarely necessity of uh, changing MJIT, so I didn't need to uh, MJIT for my own work. So 
that's the yeah our work my work the astronaut fly so I'm curious about the object shapes and how did that what ended up needing to get corrected in JIT and or YJIT and MJIT to accommodate object shapes. So object shapes is an idea to like sort of compact or compress the information of every object into a single uh, 64-bit value. And so let's say there is an object that has an instance variable named A and instance variable named B, and also it's frozen, then that kind of information could be uh, compressed into a 64-bit value. And so if you can do that, JIT compiler can only check those uh, 64-bit uh, by a single instruction. So that's faster than uh, checking, for example, like uh, this object has an instance variable named A and this is frozen, then you cannot instance set the instance variable because it's frozen. So that kind of check needs to happen by multiple instructions in the previous uh, implementation, uh, both for uh, widget and MJIT. And um, because of that, uh, because we want to leverage the uh, new like, architecture of the object shape, because like the purpose of uh, object shape is uh, to optimize instance variable access. And, and also like because we wanted to not complicate the implementation, we basically replace the previous implementation with a new implementation. So you are kind of forced to use the new optimized code in both MJIT and YJIT. So as long as you are replaced, re removing the old implementation, you have to support object shapes-based access in the MJIT and YJIT. So that's why uh, it was needed to be uh, modified. So is it faster still to freeze everything? <laughs> well, like, <laughs> that check is like, <laughs> freezing. That's a joke. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> I mean, like, so when you do the, like, when you freeze objects, um, yeah, that um, now it transitions the concept of object shapes into a frozen object shape. So it's not optimized, but like, at least for accessing the frozen object, that's supposed to be a, a, a little bit faster. So that's, um, yeah, current status. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. So I'm seeing here Ruby three has ARM support. Yep. Is that have you run like uh, benchmarks to see if M one actually does perform better with that adaptation? Right. So and, yeah. And tell me, I'm curious. Like that. That seems like a huge challenge to change, uh, adopt another architecture. Like, what is that process too? Right. So our Initial implementation that was released in Ruby 3.1 was only supported Intel. So whenever you see uh, Ruby's virtual machine instructions, you can just compile that into, like, convert that directly to Intel instructions. So that was a previous implementation. However, you now need to switch that to uh, Intel and ARM. So you need to basically have an indirection between Ruby virtual machine and the um, native code. So we introduced the uh, so-called uh, IR internal representation, well, intermediate representation. Uh, so there's a so-called widget IR in between those thing, two things. And we kind of, like, first of all, we introduced that layer, and then we added the backend, like like Intel backend, the ARM backend. So if you, instead of directly generating the Intel code, but doing the uh, generating the IR, you can automatically support Intel and ARM by using that. So that process was like we first implemented the IR and also two backends to that and then uh, we like gradually replaced the inter based generation to IR based generation and then we do that did that for uh, each Ruby instruction one by one so by completing that we then supported the ARM for every single instruction in the interpreter so that's how it worked and like 
we I think it took like a, a half year this year. So like we over, early this year we worked on uh, rewriting uh, YGT into Rust in like everywhere, and then we've now started working on IR. And so I think yeah, overall I think it took almost a half year, and so it was a long process. And then I think the hardest part in doing that was the difference between Intel and ARM. Uh, so when you write something. When you write native code in Intel, that will take care of the uh, so-called instruction cache. So like, if you have a native code in memory, it's cached by CPU, and so CPU will take Intel CPU will take care of uh, invalidating the cache so that when the code is updated, it will run the new code uh, after that. So that's easy for Intel, but for ARM, uh, CPU will not take care of that, and so you basically have to. The compiler needs to take care of what kind of code needs to be uh, flashed like, from the cache of the CPU. So, like ARM needed to have a special support for uh, flashing the code that we've written immediately. So, because of that, because we need, didn't need to do that in Intel, and we newly needed to do that, we had a lot of segmentation faults in the uh, ARM part. Like by just converting the Intel to ARM you don't introduce the inversion process. So like whenever we do that, we sometimes see the uh, segmentation fault because of that kind of thing. And we've even like working worked on that this week as well, like even while the ARM support was uh, months before at this point. So yeah, it's been hard for supporting ARM. And then uh, once we did that, I think uh, the performance improvement was good. Like on Rails bench on M1, I think that was like 30% better. Like we, you can also see the ARM the performance uh, benchmark on speed.wajit.org today, thanks to Noah developing the ARM support on the uh, metrics website. And so, yeah, I think even for applications like Rails, you could see some 10% or 30%-ish range of um, uh, performance improvement using the ARM architecture. So it's not like worse compared to Intel. Like you can get fair bit of optimization in both Intel and ARM, which is good. But um, one interesting thing was that um, uh, if you run uh, Intel code on Rosetta on M1, uh, you could also kind of jit the uh, like uh, execution, like um, YG generates Intel code and then Rosetta will convert that to ARM. And surprisingly, it kind of ended up being faster than the our ARM generated code. So like it was kind of like unfortunate, but I think Rosetta will not be maintained uh, for a long time. So I still needed to support ARM. So yeah, that's interesting experience. That's really funny. <laughs> so I'm curious, are there, are there architectural frameworks or hooks that you that can be taken advantage of for each individual architecture with Ruby? Like are there optimizations that can be pursued for each architecture? And are there strategies for like reaching for those? So because we have a, like a YGT IR to support those architectures, we have a separate backends to each of the uh, IR introduced by YGIT. And so uh, the way we do optimization, like uh, architecture-specific optimization, is to basically split everything after IR by the, for each architecture. So we have uh, like a so-called the concepts called passes. You generate IR first by the YGIT compiler, and then IR go through uh, like a concepts of the, the passes, and then when you go through the passes, that will be generating more optimized IR. So like you have a, a register like a passes for register allocation. So like if you go through that register allocation pass, the IR will 
instead of using the memory every time, that will use in a register, so it's faster. So by transforming the IR through the uh, widget passes, uh, you can perform architecture-specific optimizations because, for example, register allocation is also architecture-specific because the number of registers is also different. So by doing so, we allow architecture-specific you know, optimizations such as uh, choosing uh, more optimized instructions for the, the different cases. Like uh, ARM has a, uh, for newer machines, we have um, uh, single instructions for doing atomic operations. So we could do that kind of thing in by splitting the backend for different architectures over the budget IR. That's really cool. I'm kind of curious if somebody's listening to this and they're it sounds interesting to them, not from the standpoint of, oh, this is what it's doing for my Ruby code or this is how I take advantage of the widget, but more along the lines of, I'd like to contribute to this or I'd like to understand it better. Right, because we can only talk about it for so long, and then we all have to go back to life. And so, you know, if somebody wants to dig deeper, contribute. What resources are out there for that? So we have a uh, document for contributions, such as a. Uh, we have now on the Ruby.pt repository, we have a directory called a uh, doc, and then under doc, we also have a widget directory, and under widget directory, we have widget.md and widgethacking.md. So those two things can be uh, referred to for uh, using widget and also contributing to widget. And that has a section called widget hacking. And then you could use that as a starter to learn about the widget journals if you are interested. And also for widget, we have a lot of external contributors actually. So uh, you may look at other what other people are doing there. And also uh, you could maybe try doing something similar to those um, external contributors. Like we have some forks from GitHub that are contributing to widget as well. And so, as I said before, we have widget metrics, widget stats generated by the dashdash widget stats flag. And it's kind of easy to uh, improve the metrics when it's not reaching 100%. Like that will show, like either show uh, the reason why it is like not 100% or it will show that we are not uh, collecting the metrics correctly. So uh, if it's not 100%, then uh, you, sh- you can at least add the metrics, or if it's already added, then you can fix the metrics by looking at the particular place that is incrementing the counter. So I think that's a great way to do the contribution or yeah, be get familiar with the widget. Awesome. You have anything else to ask, Valentino? I think I'm tapped out. I'm curious about the Hamel updates. Oh, yeah. I mean, what is it? 1.7 times faster than the last I- implementation, the last version. <laughs> right. It's it's now faster. I mean, S- Slim is the slowest template engine, which is kind of funny because uh, <laughs> it's it's one of the more popular ones for the syntax. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. So um, <laughs> what what was done to make that uh, huge perf bump? So um, first of all, the they moment- put it through the widget. <laughs> I actually I haven't tried enabling widget, but uh, that's because we have ERV benchmarks or widget bench. I think it should be also make it faster as like uh, as good as um, ERV. So uh, it should make it faster. But for developing Hamo, I often don't use widget, so I, I'm not sure about that yet. So, but still, without widget, Hamo becomes like uh, 1.7 times faster than Hamo five in Hamo six. So yeah, it's a kind of major improvement, but like the moment when we I started working on Hamo was the Hamo four, and that was like um, uh, Hamo was seven times slower than Slim, basically. So oh wow, that, yeah, from uh, Hamo four, Hamo six is seven times faster today. 
So yeah, that's a huge improvement. And the reason why we weren't able to reach the performance of Slim for a while is that um, Hamo has uh, uh, two different blockers for doing that. One is uh, Hamo helper. So unlike Slim, uh, Hamo provides um, some helpers that can be used inside tables, like uh, Hamo tag and capture. And capture is a pretty complicated mechanism that allows users to do whatever they want. So removing, like making the Hamo as fast as Slim requires dealing with that kind of me- mechanism or just throwing away the slow uh, design. So um, I was kind of doing the optimization that are possible without fixing or breaking the compatibility in Hamo 5. Like Hamo 5 became like a four times or five times faster than Hamo 4 without breaking compatibility a lot. So that was made without um, breaking everything. However, I had the idea of making faster uh, without uh, breaking the compatibility, but um, still dealing with the hack or removing the complicated mechanism for cases that are possible. Uh, So... But um, the problem is it's pretty hard to implement that kind of complicated process. So like I was not doing that because it takes a lot of time to do that. But then uh, the founder of Hamo uh, called Hampton reached out to me saying, uh, you can just remove that. So like we ended up removing the uh, features that are blocking Hamo to be faster. So now we don't have a capture error, unfortunately. And like uh, we don't need to deal with that kind of complexity. So like, you don't have features that Slim doesn't have, which is why it's now as fast as Slim, basically. So now uh, Hamo 6 doesn't have some features, but still uh, it's as fast as Slim today. Nice. That's really funny. Just just remove, for everybody out there, just remove things that are blocking you and mm-hmm. suddenly everything <laughs> is faster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All, all your slow code. I'm going to do that with all of my code. <laughs> this is slow out. <laughs> so this yeah. is slow too. I don't need it either. <laughs> right. So I, I'm curious at, at Shopify, they, they primarily lean on ERB. Yeah, I think uh, so. Yeah. yeah. The Shopify is using ERB mainly. And also for users, we the the CEO, Toby, authored another template called Liquid Templates. So like, uh, mm-hmm. users are using Liquid Templates, but for our own implementations, I think we are using ERB. So my contribution is basically not utilized there, but it's good. <laughs> so what got you? I, I know you're the author of Hamlet, which was like kind of the jump to make Hamel faster from the beginning. What what got you into that being like, oh, I should make this faster? <laughs> so um, the as of the Hamel 4, I was um, kind of a university student at the time. And then I was into uh, compiler stuff, like I was writing a C compiler and a scheme interpreter. And also like generally, I was into compiling something. And then Hamel was the template language that the previous employee, or yeah, the previous era where uh, I was a student there, was using so like the I was in Cookpad at the time and Cookpad is using Hamo everywhere so like if I were to work on template language then uh, Hamo should be the go-to for making the impact at the company so I started writing that and was some like funny enough like there was another person doing that at the time so he was writing another implementation of Hamo called Fast Hamo that was later renamed to Famo but like. So we ended up having two different faster Hamo invitations at the time, and we were kind of competing with each other. And how it uh, went was like, uh, I skipped implementing some feature that Hamo did have. And so because of that, Hamo Hamlet ended up being faster than fast Hamo 
because Hummel it was basically broken at the time. And so Hummel became the fastest template agent because I forgot to do something. And then we, uh, I thought about like the, the other author said, Oh, how many is fast because it's broken. And so I was kind of like, uh, worried about that. But then I figured out we could change the design a little bit to uh, reasonably allow that kind of optimization. And then we incorporated that incompatibility in Hamel 6 finally. So that's how it happened. Like Hamel it became faster because it's forgotten. <laughs> and like, uh, we ended up using that in the Hamel 6 as well today. So. Um, that's the story. You have a history here of just making everything run faster as <laughs> as an upgrades, you know? <laughs> that's all. I'm a longtime Hamel user. I prefer it over Slim. I know a lot of people really love Slim, but... <laughs> yeah, now I'm also <laughs> I don't know. maintaining that, so... <laughs> the, the issue that I run into and the reason that I like Hamel is that I am not a uh, a designer at all. Mm. And so, like, I can I can play with, like, spacing and stuff a little bit, you know, you know, maybe you switch a color here or there, stuff like that. But making something look the way that it ought to look, you know, making it easy, making it flow, it's just not really my thing. And so what I wind up doing is I wind up going to themeforest.net and buying <laughs> templates, HTML yeah, templates, yeah. right? So the first step is, is you, you put your HTML in a view and then you put all of your assets in public, right? And then you can eventually move them into some kind of asset manager, but Webpacker or whatever. But you don't even have to do that. And sometimes I just leave it and then I just have a CSS file that I just load in after everything else and say, this is me clobbering what anyway. But what's frustrating is, is a lot of these layouts, it's like this div hell. <laughs> and, and, and it's fine. It's fine. You have that slant going in, right? For all of your different components. Right. And yeah, eventually those will all move into like uh, web components or things like that, or partials. I, I don't use partials anymore. I just web components. Anyway, but the issue I run into is finding those stupid close tags. It's it's such a mess. And then the other thing is, is like they use Bootstrap or something for the basis of it. And so it's got like 18 classes in it. And I'm trying to figure out, okay, this div has, you know, 18 classes and you know, wh where does that actually, you know, open and close? Because it's with Hamel, it's easy, right? Because yeah. it's just indented. Then so that for me, more than anything else, it's that it's that frustration of, okay, where do I find the close tag on this, you know, and I'll edit something and I'll delete a close tag or add an extra close tag, and then everything shifts, right? And it's uh, anyway, so yeah, so thank you for making that fast. That makes my life better. <laughs> sure. It's funny because that kind of reminds me of Python, the arguments uh -huh. where people, you know, that come from Python doing Ruby and they have to add the end to the def definition yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and they expect everything to be neatly, you know, <laughs> neatly indented. <laughs> yeah, of course, I'm a jerk and I just want to then screw with my indentation on purpose. But I have a I have a plug in for Rufo on most of my Rails apps. And so it. I save the Ruby file and it auto indents everything and cleans up all the stuff. I'm curious, is there any uh, optimizations you've taken out of Hamel that you can apply to ERB or is are the designs kind of just two completely separate? So what I've been kind of thinking about was to uh, sort of uh, some helpers. So like Hamel is now using the template engine framework called Temple. Uh, I'm also like a uh, manager of uh, Temple as well and like, also became a gem owner recently, so I can just reset. But basically, what it does is similar to YG, kind of. So like, uh, there's a 
some concept called tempo IR, like similar to wedged IR. And then similar to passes, we have filters. So like if you take uh, IR goes through filters, the IR becomes more optimized. So as long as your template engine uh, uses like a tempo IR, you could optimize that uh, similar to Hamo or Slim by using the filters. So um, we have ERB um, implementation using tempo IR inside tempo gem. And so we could just insert um, uh, IR filters used by Hamlet and Hamo to optimize the ERB further. I think we could also uh, use that in uh, Slim as well for some cases, uh, although uh, for major benchmarks that might not be impacted by that, but still you should be able to share some of the, the uh, optimizations. For example, when I was writing Hamlet, I, I wrote some filter to split the string interpolation into the segments so that you could concatenate that with the surrounding strings by compile time instead of doing that on runtime. So by doing so, the string concatenation becomes faster. And obviously, that could be used for other template engines as well. And so uh, if currently, the te- uh, ERB implementation inside the temple gem is slow, but we could improve that if we want. But basically, the ERB implementation used by Wales or other places is usually a gem called ERB and it's not using Tempo. So it's kind of hard to leverage the capability there, but if you want to compete with that, we could implement everything in the Tempo as well and then uh, sort of uh, replace every in the future, but that's the current situation. Awesome. So is it as fast as the RB then, or does it matter? Because that uh, I always ask the one, and then I'm like, oh, is it fast enough? And it seems like it's fast enough, but yeah, is it as fast as the RB? So yeah, no. Uh, I think we could also do some optimization, such as removing local variable um, in the uh, like a indirection inside Hamo or same as well. So like ERB sometimes becomes slow, uh, faster than Hamo in some cases, but um, generally for most cases, there's almost no meaningful difference between those temperate engines at this point. So mm-hmm. you don't shouldn't need to worry about that if those everything is as fast as those things. And so it's a pretty minor problem. We could make it even faster, but still it's like a point like one or like a two percent ish changes at that point, at this point. So you don't need to worry about that. Like. Hamo, ERB, Steam are fast enough, I, I would say. Yep. So how are your studies going? How do you juggle all this? <laughs> <laughs> I know you maintain half of Ruby at this point, right? <laughs> right. So um, that's kind of part of the reason why I joined Shopify. So like prior to joining Shopify, I was doing the uh, the proprietary distributed system maintenance and the previous employer. So like the open source maintenance was only possible after work time. And then I got that child uh, two years ago. So like I needed to spend more time taking care of the child. So like maintaining the open source is, like uh, requires a lot of time, but still I don't have time for uh, doing that. So uh, by Making the full-time job uh, open source maintenance, I was now able to uh, spend more time in open source. That's one way to approach it. And I guess the other approach is to uh, sort of switch in the projects over time. Like uh, Pamo doesn't really need a lot of time for uh, like all the time. Like you only need to do something when uh, releases or changes or uh, other like uh, dependency update happens. We do need to do something, but basically the way it works is. I work on Hamo sometimes and then leave that and then go to another project, do something because during that period, Hamo doesn't need any help from me. So I kind of work on a lot of things, but in a different moment, basically. Cool. How is your child? Have you found yourself trying to optimize fatherhood as you go along? <laughs> well, yeah, like... Uh, is that JJIT, like kid JIT? <laughs> 
yeah, yeah. I, I'm optimizing myself for like <laughs> dealing with that kind of problem. But like, uh, she's now two years old, so it's getting easier and easier over time. And uh, now I can just um, happily play with the kid when I'm not working, and then I can also like go to the park together and like spend happy time compared to the early days where uh, the kid was basically crying all, all the time. So now it's um, optimizing both sides, like. The kid is kind of optimized towards uh, playing with me myself, and also I'm also optimized towards um, taking care of her better. So that's better now. That's great. <laughs> yeah, you know, too. If you leave food out, they won't starve. So, <laughs> all right. Well, yeah, we're kind of getting to that point. I have a hard stop in about 18 minutes, so I'm going to push us toward picks. But before we do that, if people want to follow any progress or see what you're working on online, where, where do they go? I am available on Twitter as a Kokubun, or becomes a zero. And then I'm also available on GitHub as well, and the same username. So I think those are good resources. Like I basically announced the, open, the major open source work on Twitter, and also you could see everything on GitHub. So those two, I would recommend to people. Awesome. Have you ever wished that you had a group of people that were just as passionate about writing code as you are? I know I did. I did that for most of my career. I'd go to the meetups. I'd try and create other opportunities. And it was just really hard, right? The meetups, I got some of that, but they were only like once or twice a month. And it was just really hard to find that group of people that I connected with and, and really wanted to, you know, talk about code a lot, right? I mean, I love writing code. I think it's the best. And so I've decided to create this community and create it a, a worldwide community that we can all jump in and do it. So we're going to have two workshops every week. One of those or two of those every month are going to be Q&A calls, right, where you can get on, you can ask me or me and another expert questions. Uh, the rest of them are going to be focused on different aspects of career or programming or things like that, right? So it'll go anywhere from like deployments and containers all the way up to managing your 401k and negotiating your benefits package. We'll, we'll cover all of it, okay? And then we're also going to have meetups every month for your particular technology area. So we have shows about JavaScript, React, Angular, Vue, and so on. We're going to have meetups for all of those things. I'm going to revive the freelancer show. We'll have one about that, right? So you can get started freelancing or continue freelancing if that's where you're at. And I'm working on finding authors who can actually do weekly video tutorials on something for 10 minutes that's related, to, again, to those technology areas so that you can stay current and keep growing. So if you're interested, go to topendevs.com slash sign up and you can get in right now for $39. When we're done, that price is going to go up to $75. And the $39 price gets you access to two calls per week. The, the full price at $150, which is going to be $75 over the next few weeks, that price is going to get you access to all of the calls and all of the tutorials and everything else that we put out from Top End Devs along with member pricing for our remote conferences that are coming up next year. So go check it out, topendevs.com slash sign up. All right, Valentino, do you have some picks for us? My pick is uh, go see Takashi's great Ruby Kaigi talk. There's a, a hidden gem in there where he switches to Japanese without noticing. I, I, I thought that was great. Uh, kudos to you for being able to think and speak in both languages it was a, it was a great talk so i recommend that uh seeing that it was uh ruby four and yjit awesome i'm gonna throw out some picks i don't have any board games to pick this time around i am gonna i'm gonna pick a board game convention instead it's coming up in like two weeks 
It's here in Utah. It's called TimpCon. The big one in the Salt Lake area is called SaltCon, but that one like sells out every year and it's hard to get into. TimpCon's in Utah County and it's it's pretty awesome. I've wound up going for the last, or I went last year and I'm going this year doing the same thing. A friend of mine is part owner in a game board game shop and uh, the board game shop does the game demos over in the corner for like five games. So we we all learn how to play these four or five games and then we teach them to people, right? So then you just walk up and sit down and we'll teach them how to play. The rest of the conference, you can either bring your own games or you can check out games from their game library and then you play it with other people, right? So you're just playing, paying to be at the, the conference and, you know, play with complete strangers, which is kind of fun in some ways. And you, you see some stuff you haven't seen before if you play with the same people on a regular basis like I do. So anyway, it's really fun. It's really cool to do it. And I recommend that people go find their own local board game conventions and find a way to connect with people. Besides that, I'm starting a book club for developers. And the first book we're going to do is Clean Architecture by Uncle Bob. And Bob has actually agreed to come to some of our book club meetings. So we're starting it in December, the first week in December, and we're just going to have a call every week and talk about the book. So if you want to come and talk about the book, then uh, feel free. We're going to use uh, some kind of conferencing software that allows you to have so many people kind of on stage, for lack of a better way of putting it, and then we'll just rotate people through. So if you have something to share, something to you know, some insight, some question, if Bob's around or some question for the group, let's do it. And then what I'm really hoping to do is focus some of the discussion because we'll have some discussion group too, like a, a forum or something around, okay, how does this apply to what the code I write or, you know, things like that. So looking forward to all of that. And that's going to be a ton of fun. Yeah, just excited about that. And then I did push back Rails Remote Conf to February. So if you were looking forward to that, that's going to be in February. And uh, yeah, that, those are pretty much my picks. Takashi, do you have some picks? Uh, I have a cu- couple of picks. The first one is a uh, so-called Jiro Ramen. So Japanese, Japan have a lot of various types of ramen, and one of them is called uh, Jiro Ramen. It's because um, there's a ramen, like a franchise called Jiro, and uh, it's kind of a sort of religiously famous or popular ramen uh, franchise. And it's, um, it's uh, kind of harder to get that kind of Jiro ramen in the U.S. because um, it's, um, I'm not sure if it's popular in the U.S., but so like, but recently in the Silicon Valley Bay area, we got uh, two places of Jiro ramen recently. So like I was able to enjoy that um, at this place. So it's very good. Um, Jiro ramen is basically a lot of garlic and a lot of meat. So like, and also in Japan, it's known for being very cheap. Like you only pay five bucks to get a huge like, chunk of uh, cabbage and sprouts and uh, meat and also a lot of garlic. And uh, it's a strong taste. And uh, a lot of people like that, but uh, because you often get uh, end up being pretty fat by eating that, it's um, like uh, famous only for like uh, uh, not like fat people. <laughs> That's a good word to say, but yeah, so uh, I like that. So like uh, it's good that I can eat that uh, near here these days. Another pick is... Um, uh, I, I speak iBonds. So like uh, iBonds is a uh, like t- t- US Treasury is um, provided bond and it's also inflation accelerated uh, bond. So like it has now a 9.62% uh, interest rate guarantee, which is pretty good. Although it's going to end this week, uh, maybe listeners will not be able to buy that in the same, same way. But 
still, these inflation is pretty like insane. Like my like rent cost is gonna increase six percent this year. It's unfortunate. I need to fight with that. So like it's good that we have a nine point six percent interest rate. And I bought that also. I set up a savings account that has a three point one one percent APY. So it's good too. So I'm leveraging those kind of things to fight with uh, inflation these days. Very cool. Yeah, I I have to say, I grew up just with the kind of the ramen packets you get at the grocery store here. And, you know, so I was like, oh, ramen is just, you know, cheap kind of mediocre food. And then I went to a conference with some friends and one of my friends had been a missionary in Japan. And so we went to Japantown in San Francisco and went to a ramen place. And I'm like, ramen place, really? Yeah, the, uh, yeah, right. You know, and so we go eat there and I'm like, this is the best thing ever. <laughs> and come back and find out there are ramen places here in Utah. But it also turns out that my dad was a missionary in oh. Japan mm-hmm. and he had had that kind of ramen and he had neglected to share it with me while I was growing up. <laughs> and so... He, he kind of caught a little bit of uh, attitude from me for that because I felt like I had been unfairly uh, deprived as a child. Uh, you know, I mean, we ate gyoza and fried rice and a whole bunch of other stuff, you know, the way that he had it in Japan, the way he learned to make it or, you know, we'd buy it from the, the store. But yeah, never, never ramen. So anyway, I love that stuff. It's so good. So yeah. And what kind of ramen was it? Can you just type it into the chat so we sure, get it in sure. the... It's a J-R- uh, J I R O, so like a, it's a Jiro. It's a like, oh, Jiro ramen. Yeah, very okay. like normal, common name of the Japanese first name. So yeah, that's why. Cool. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. I think most of the ramen that I see around here is the tonkatsu. Tonkotsu, I guess. Yeah. It's funny that there are the, two, the pork. Two, yeah. So like there's tonkatsu and tonkotsu. Tonkatsu is a cutlet of pork, and then tonkotsu is a like a soup made by pork. So like many people got confused and say. Tonkatsu ramen, but it's basically ramen. And I see a lot of that here, so it's funny. Nice. Well, uh, I started learning Japanese, and then my daughter decided she wanted to learn Chinese. And so we are, I'm learning Chinese with her. And when we're done with that, then I'll go back and learn Japanese because I think it's cool. But anyway, well, thanks for coming, Takashi. This was a lot of fun. And yeah, hopefully it helps people understand what's going on under the hood. And if you're dealing with things on the level of, hey, I want to optimize my VM or understand what's going on in there. Yeah, there's plenty of stuff here to look at. So good deal. And then, of course, Hamel and Hamel is saves me headaches. So all right, folks, we'll wrap it up till next time. Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.